So my name is Matthew, and, uh, and I think we all have a story. Uh, but no story is quite like how we came into the world. Our real origin tale. You know, my son Isaiah is looking at Marvel heroes, and he's reading all about origins. And I can't wait to tell him about this origin story. So I was born in a little hospital in Glendale, California, to Charlotte. By the way, I don't think Los Angeles is real U.S. It's not quite like Alabama or Georgia or so on. Uh, and my mother was all alone until my father came, uh, and he first saw me through a window. There it is. Uh, no, that's not me. Um, I should give proper copyrights to this baby. At some point, I will. I will find them, and I will do it for them. I was covered with wires on my chest uh, with a box, a square with red, yellow blinking lights indicating my heart rate. And when I stopped breathing, alarms went off. It terrified my parents to live at the edge of the unknown. Will my son make it? Is it my fault, my genetics, that make him this way? And babies are magical because they're charged with this kind of potential. My parents were excited about who I would become, but suddenly they had new feelings, dread, that my start could be doomed already, doubt about our future together as a family. Now, while it was scary, my dad found a sense of humor in it. True story, this is on ABC um, News. They talked about a baby that was comforted by the imperial song. <laughs> so noticing the black box on my chest with red and yellow lights, he called me Baby Darth Vader, an iconic bad guy of the dark force, a cyborg, a cyborg who adapted. I learned some things out of my story that I would carry with me as I got older. Number one, Star Wars seemed to be this family's religion. I better stay in line. Number two, comedy. A sense of humor can move a failed start forward and sustain you during a critical moment. Third, commitment. Always commit to living and never give up. And four, consecration. Something, or rather someone greater than myself, had set me aside as Matthew, which means gift of God. I heard there's a lag. Let me try it one more time. Oh. So what about you? What is your birth story? And this question leads us into another story, which is Jesus' own birth story, his own origins. And today we're looking at Matthew, Matthew's take on Jesus' origin tale. It's both, I'm hoping that it's more the gospel of Matthew, not just my take. Many believe that Matthew was, Matthew the disciple of Jesus was the author of this gospel. And looking to the painting, you'll notice that there's five fingers on the angel's hand. The painter wanted to find a way of communicating that the Gospel of Matthew has five teachings, five discourses, and that Matthew, as the instrument of God, is inspired to dictate this. 
Many believe that this gospel was probably written between 70 and 80 AD, and his message is mostly directed to Jewish Christians after the destruction of the temple, who believe that Jesus, which is the Greek word for Joshua, or Yeshua in Hebrew, if you watch the Passion of the Christ, you'll hear the word Yeshua, it's more of the Aramaic term, is the Hamashiach. You got to put that ha in the back of your throat there. The king or the Messiah. And this is why one of the key ideas of Matthew is fulfillment. Matthew is charged and packed full of hyperlinks to the First Testament. When Pastor Ken asked me to preach on Emmanuel, I almost dropped my cup of coffee in mid-speech because it's one of the most difficult passages I have seen in trying to understand how they connect together. Hence why uh, there will be a little prize for you for getting through this sermon. I put little candies under each of your chairs. It'll be a 30-minute sermon. Don't check underneath your chairs. You won't find anything. (laughs) Our story here is really starting with Joseph. It's a tentative story of a husband and father reflecting on his marriage as failed from the beginning, a doomed marriage tainted by adultery. One would feel anger, shame, and betrayal. But there's something more going on, isn't there? Something bigger than Joseph, or rather someone bigger, who asks his people to stand in faith so they can join him in the adventure of redemption. Friends, would you join me in this adventure in one simple way? I'm wondering if you can just read the words on the screen when you're prompted. This would really just help me to come back to the text, and it would also be wonderful to hear God's words together. Is that okay with you? Thank you so much. If there's one thing that I hope you get from today, it's this. With failed plans, plan to stand with God. Would you mind saying that with me? With failed plans? Thank you. Actually, you went faster than I did, so you do it better than I do. With failed plans, plan to stand with God. And I invite you to read verse 18 with me. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Thank you. By the way, how is this church with me practicing Greek? It's okay. Wow. That's a, that's a big, enthusiastic. I got a lot over here. Nothing on this side. Maybe more the Hebrew side. Okay. Don't have a lot of Hebrew in this one. Uh, one of the things that Pastor Ken didn't mention about me is I love languages. I also love failing at speaking of them. So um, I do think that what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to state it where it's relevant to the message. And I find that it just brought me to a different place. So he begins with this phrase, Tade Jesu Christu Hegenes Hutos Ein which is translated as the origins of Jesus Christ, happened in such this way. So this Greek word hegenes could be translated as origins, kind of where we get the word genesis from. And it's not an exhaustive tale. We don't get all the details. We don't get all the mire and muck. But it's short and highly meaningful. 
Get it? Yes, been betrothed. I found this picture from the Orthodox Church. And the first thing we learn is this beautiful, uncomplicated event is about to happen. Meneste theses, tes metros tu Marias tu Joseph. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, let's look at having been betrothed. Mary was likely in her mid-teens, 14, 15, 16, 17. Her betrothal engagement was equivalent to marriage. Now, this was new to me. I didn't know this part. As soon as I put that ring on Valerie's finger, in that context, we would have been married. And according to later Jewish law, the betrothal affects the acquisition of the bride. So Mary was legally a married woman at this point. If Joseph were to die, she'd be called a widow. In order for them to leave each other, they must have a bill of divorcement or be punished for infidelity. How many of you have gotten engaged and broke off the engagement? Don't have to raise your hand, that's okay. Uh, I was very close to getting engaged once and so was Valerie. And it's just a different cultural understanding that you would need a letter of divorce or be punished for infidelity. It's, it's a very different cultural backstory back here. So at this point in the story, there's no failure. Everything is normal. The plan is going well, and this is an average situation, routine even. Mary is a virgin, innocent, pure. Joseph, an excited husband whose family will take Mary in as their own. So the next part is, before they came together, she, now what did she do? Did she get a wedding dress? Before they came together, she hung out with her bridesmaids, went out for a run. This is all very normal. I'm expecting she's going to get a wedding band for her husband. That's what I would hope anyway. But before they came together, we find out this story takes a very unexpected turn. And I pause here because it's so easy to get accustomed to the scripture and to forget how the normal thing becomes an unexpected and extraordinary story. Before they came together, she was found to be with child. The first thought that must come to our minds is that innocent Mary has committed adultery or tragically was forced into sexual relations. So our story is no longer normal. It's a tragedy. It's a failed marriage before it even started. But Matthew has a different take on this. He chooses the next words very carefully. Ek panumatos hagiu from the Holy Spirit. Matthew just drops a huge bomb in the story. And Mary believes it, but never has anything like this happened before. The only reasonable and thoughtful response is actually to doubt it. So Luke is going to go with Mary's experience and that's a wonderful tale that I want to emphasize. But 
Matthew is going the direction of Joseph. So we're going to go deeper into Joseph's experience in this. I invite you to read with me if you can. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Thank you. So let's talk about Joseph here. Thank you. Uh, some people say that Joseph is much older, and this might explain why we don't see him in the Gospels or in Jesus' ministry. It's more likely that Joseph was probably around the age of 20, from at least what I can tell. Now, imagine yourself at 20. I don't know about you, but I was not thinking all that well at 20. I would say my brain hadn't fully developed, which is scientifically true up to the age of 25, but I had evidence for this. Luckily, my wife married me at 26, and we had a baby at 27. So I think those were all good choices. Joseph, we're told, is hon de chaos, that is, being a just man. Is he declaring Joseph righteous? Now, this is a key question. Is he declaring him righteous because of what he's about to do? Or is Matthew trying to explain the reason why Joseph did what he did? So with this hon de chaos, it's actually, he's giving us the reasons why. Joseph, before this betrothal, was righteous, and he didn't declare himself that way. It was actually others who did. Matthew is telling the story of why Joseph did what he did, and Matthew says is for these two reasons. He, I love this word, he willed to avoid shaming her publicly, and he desired to divorce her quietly or in secret. This word dikaios or righteous has to do with being interested in doing the right thing. You can also think of mercy, not giving others what they deserve. I could tell you right now, my default wouldn't have been that. If I was married and found out that there was another baby in my wife's belly, I would feel hurt. I'd feel betrayed. I'd feel ashamed. I might even feel disgusted. And I would certainly feel angry. Because that's human nature. Again, we're following this story, and suddenly it takes another divergence. Joseph does not act like our default human nature. Joseph acts in this saintly way. So Joseph doesn't go there, but he's still in a rock in a hard place, which leads us to another key word. That's a, that's a D, by the way. Uh, it looks in the caps like a triangle. Degamatisai, which means public shaming. So since betrothal is as good as marriage, Mary is subjected to Jewish law. And as an adulteress, her punishment is stoning and shame, at the very least, shame by cutting of hair. So Joseph reminds us all that standing with God's plan may mean public shaming for us. 
Joseph is trying to figure out the best thing to do here. But as he considered these things, he thought about these things. He reflected on these things. And this is a really important word, too. Here is, you can kind of see Joseph's uh, right arm here as he's pondering, and the angel's there. The arm emphasizes this muscular structure. So they were trying to draw out his carpentry vocation. Auto enthu methentos. Enthu methentos. Pondering about these things. Processing. So this phrase really has to do with processing information, but doing it carefully. Have you ever done that before? You hear some news, and you just got to process it. It's like the emotions and the thoughts are coming to you, but it's, not all, it's all coming at once, and you can't tease it out. Again, his marriage seemed to fail before it even got started. Have you ever started something that seemed to be doomed from the beginning? Could be starting a business or a plan. The first time I did fasting or cold showers were definitely doomed from the beginning. Have you ever started something that was in the same day and that didn't work out? It could be that simple as well. The facts change and suddenly that joy, that peace you had is met with unexpected disaster. I remember a time like that. See, I was 19, close to Joseph, Joseph's age, and the whole experience drove me to stand with God at the age of 19 and to go on a missionary trip uh, to Nagaland, India, northeast, which is pretty close to Nepal. And there were a couple of catches, though. First, you couldn't get a permit as an individual. Only, they would only let you go in if you were married or you were a group of four. And being that I couldn't convince any of my friends to go with me and no one to convince me to marry so I could take a missionary trip, I was going to have to go by myself. By the way, that second part is a joke. I would never ask someone to marry me to go on a mission trip. The second catch is that the pastor there could only receive funds via their missionaries. And this meant they had to send onto me 6,000 US dollars strapped to my body. It took me four days of traveling, a 14-hour plane ride in China, 24-hour layaway in Hong Kong, one day in Calcutta, one day in New Delhi. And by the time I got to Mumbai, I was lost, exhausted. Everything smelled like curry, which I love but it was suddenly overwhelming. And with a wave of weariness, several hidden vulnerabilities, I knocked out in the airport waiting for my next flight. And just before I did, I was thinking, what did I get myself into? I felt dread come over me and thought somewhat carefully, did this mission fail before it even got started? So I want to pause on that story. And I want to bring it back to Joseph. Bit of a delay. How's everyone doing? Is this okay? Okay. 
Right. When we go back to Joseph, he's in this deep state of pondering, and Matthew says this, Edu Anglus Creo. Behold the angel of the Lord. Then he says, Kat Onar, which means down deep in his dream. Now, some scholars suggest that a messenger of the Lord, some messenger from God came and spoke. But I think that it's more clear from what I can understand around Greek is that this would have been the angel of the Lord. Not just any angel, but the angel of the Lord. Which brings us to a theophany account. The three visitors of Abraham. This is the same language in the first testament of the Bible. The three visitors of Yahweh met with Abraham and Sarah to tell them of the good news, a chosen child in their old age. Or this one. When Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord. The language here is different than when referring to a messenger of Yahweh. The Hebrew and Greek are intentionally ambiguous, but clear in who we are talking about. They're intentionally ambiguous because they don't want to say who it is. But it's essentially God coming to Joseph in a dream, is what I'm suggesting. But spoken through Matthew's understanding of Jewish culture. So, what did this angel say to me? Oh, okay. No, I haven't gotten my story yet. Let me go back over here. We're still in Joseph. Say this with me. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. You shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from his sins. Thank you again. So he says some very important things. Do not fear. In the dream, in the deep down, dark place of the dream. This is a prohibition. This is more like don't start fearing about this whole thing. So we learn something new about Joseph's processing. He's afraid. He's deeply afraid. He's afraid that by taking her as his wife, they would be subjected to public shame too. How would you explain this to one of your guy friends? Okay, so I'm still thinking in Joseph's. He must have had a social network. I'm going to call his two friends, Levi and Judah. Okay, I'm just making this up. This isn't here in this passage. But you could see maybe Joseph is hanging out with his two friends by the fire, having some wine, maybe a little bit of uh, lamb shank. And he says, hey, says Levi, now tell me what really happened. You guys were together, right? Like really together? Like you knew her? And then his buddy Judah says, Oi, 
That's not what happened. It was some other guy. Virgin births don't come on. Come on, Joe. What are you, crazy? You could see that Joseph understands that shame is coming. The public will call his son a bastard for going forward. And Joseph's afraid of this. Communal scorn and mockery. But it's not unlike what Jesus went through. And he's having second thoughts. And the angel of the Lord says, don't start going that way. Don't globalize the problem. Just focus on the first thing and I will lead you. Which leads us to the, if there's one thing that you can draw from today, it's this. Whatever the right thing to do is, it doesn't start with fear. Whatever the right thing to do is during these critical moments, it doesn't start with fear. Continue with God's first plans. I want to talk about the bearing piece for just a second. And I'll wait till this comes on again. You shall bear a son, texatai de huion. It's the language of Genesis with Abraham and Sarah again. So in this case, Abraham is in the far left, looking startled by the news that Sarah will, bring, will bear a son in her old age. The three visitors are in the middle, and one is proclaiming the news with the finger to the right hand of, over in Abraham's corner, and the left hand back to Sarah, who is laughing secretly, and covered. Mary, unlike Sarah, accepts it fully in Luke's account as a humble servant. Joseph, too, unlike Abraham, will follow through with these commands. And Abraham disbelieves and fears. In fact, he even gets a slave girl, Hagar, and Sarah agrees that before he dies, he should lay with her to get a son. Joseph, on the other hand, believes and takes aggressive action. He flees to Egypt, and the angel speaks to him again in 2.13. And while in Egypt, this angel visits him in a dream a third time in 2.19. So God speaks in dreams, especially for Joseph. We come back to the main idea, which is, if you're in a critical moment, stand with God, and he will direct your steps. So what did Matt do? Lost in India at 19. So there I was, totally lost, arms laid out wide, laying on my big backpack, $6,000 on my chest and on my stomach. My hungry American fast food deprived stomach. See, you would have found out I was American eventually. Deep in a dream, Kat Onar. And friends, what happened next is, it's hard to describe, but it was subtle. Imagine looking into a thick black darkness and pieces of metal moving around, piercing the darkness and creating bright white lines. Have you ever played Etch-A-Sketch? Yeah. Did you ever make a Mona Lisa like Elf in Christmas Story? Uh, the best I could do was a really ugly looking flower. So imagine those little pieces kind of drawing a, an outline of an angel. I saw wings, 
I saw eyes, I saw hair, I saw long robes. And the light of these lines became increasingly brighter. And then, boom, it just came alive. And the angel said to me in a loud shout, Get up! Go! Three words. I woke up, grabbed my things, noticed two sliding doors in front of me, and I just knew that was my flight. And I ran over, stuck my arm through the door, and the flight attendant let me through, and I made it. Now, I didn't know what else waited for me, but I did know I was on the right path. At critical moments, we stand with God by doing the first thing he tells us to do. Right now, uh, I wasn't going to mention this, but yesterday I heard that the pastor that, I, that led me to faith in God, his name is Pastor Alex in Hawaii, he's right now in critical condition. And I would just ask this week if you could just pray for him. Uh, he's in the ICU. He had a terrible accident. Um, and I don't know all the details because it's all coming through Facebook, but it seems like he's in critical condition. And right now, I am asking God to visit him in his sleep, that God speak to him, and that God wake him up from his coma. Would you stand in agreement with me on that one? Thank you. So the angel continues. If you say this next part with me, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save people from their sins. The phrase here is about from our sins, and it can be hard to understand what this means, because I, as I read it, I was thinking, I'm just going to take it as my individual sins that I, that I commit. But I think it might be a little bit of a, a bigger story. Hey, over time, Israel's frequent disobedience to God led to a point of no return. This is the destruction of the temple and the Babylonian exile, the first temple. No leader, no home, no temple, no governance, displaced and disgraced. And the joy of this passage in Matthew, the peace of it, are the angel's words to Joseph. Jesus was going to end a 500-year exilic punishment of his chosen people and reconstitute the new Israel around Jesus. The 12 disciples are going to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. The new Exodus, Jesus was going to be a new Moses. And I have a question. When did Jesus die? What day was it on? In, in terms of the Jewish calendar, does anyone... Can anyone uh, give it a try? What day of the Jewish calendar was it? What feast? Passover, absolutely. Did he die on the Day of Atonement? Yom Kippur. He didn't die on the Day of Atonement. He died on the day of the Passover. So this is interesting. Jesus intended to die on the Passover, he could have intended to die on atonement. Would you agree with that? 
He could have picked a different day if he wanted, but he chose this day. So this is a bit controversial, but it seems like Matthew's passage is not an atonement passage. It's an exile passage. It's a new Moses passage. It's a new Exodus passage. It's hard to say, but when you come to Paul, you see this advancement of new, not new, but it's theology that's there, but it's not everywhere. The theology of the atonement is true, and it comes in Hebrews, and it comes in Paul. But here for Matthew, he wants to emphasize that this is an exile problem, and Jesus is bringing us out of that. It took me a long time to see, to see it that way, and I'd be open to this community to talk to you about this and to see what you see in Scripture, but I just wanted to put that out, that Matthew is really calling forward this new Moses the church is both Jew and Gentile of a spiritual exile with God, a spiritual exile where his presence and the weight of his glory is captive by our collective cumulative sin. And out of that into Emmanuel, God with us, God among us, God in his presence as a new land, Jesus as the new temple, you and me as the new people of God. If you don't mind reading this with me. All this took place in order to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. So here we see Plerothe te herthen, fulfill what was spoken. Now, this kind of verb is very interesting because it could be like fulfill it and get it done and then it's over, or it could be something that gets done, it's completed, but it has these ongoing results. It seems to be the latter. And it's sort of like how you put a down payment on a house, but, it, but you don't fully own it. I'm speaking of someone who I don't know if I'll be able to own a house in Vancouver, but I thought it's a good analogy. But then when you own it, there, is, there are ongoing positive results, such as increased equity, no more debt, more eating out at Five Guys, which is something I would probably do, a home for your children and grandchildren. And it's also true back there when you had a house, right? When you first put a down payment on it, you had it, but it wasn't fulfilled. Well, the same thing with getting a diploma. You have the knowledge first, and you complete your courses, and you get the diploma, and then you have ongoing results. You get a job, more competence, more pay. And also something that I don't fully own yet um, because I have student loans in the States. So I chose two analogies that I am praying that it will faithfully happen. The reason I'm saying this is because if we're, it's going to be really important for where we go next. As I mentioned, one of the most challenging hyperlinks uh, in the New Testament is this one today. So Matthew quotes here a passage from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah lived in Jerusalem and gave several oracles and prophetic words from Yahweh to different kings. And Matthew uses a 
literary device called a chiasm. You may have seen this in other places. But basically, let me see if I can go back here. Oh, you can kind of see it in this example. Yeah, so this is a chiasm. So in the verse 18 that we started off with, it starts off kind of low energy, and then you get to the middle, and there's this climax about Emmanuel, and then Matthew will bring back the narrative back down. But what this tells you is that Matthew really needs you to get this point. This is a very, very important point about Emmanuel. But just like any online hyperlink, it doesn't always go as you plan. How many of you have been to the website and you clicked on a link and it took you exactly where you wanted to go? Some people. How many times you clicked on a link and it took you to a totally different web page? Yeah. Oh, more often. That was my experience with this. Oh, this will be simple. I'm just going to read a prophecy. And it wasn't. So Matthew's hyperlink to Isaiah's book takes us down a journey that I promise will make sense, just not initially. And we do see some, some problems here. Actually, let me read this real quick. Yeah, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. But what does it mean? Yeah, so this hyperlink sends us to another source, which is in Isaiah 7. And there are a number of problems that people have talked about this passage, and I don't want to shy away from them, but I also don't want to uh, be exhaustive. So I'm just picking out one primary problem that people have talked about. And is the question of, is it possible that Emmanuel was already born during Ahaz's time? And if it was, how do we understand that? Great. So to understand Emmanuel and what Isaiah is doing with it, we have to go back to the situation. And here's the situation. Isaiah gives king of Judah, Ahaz, a prophecy in his own time. He seems like a child, uh, it seems like a child named Emmanuel was born already in the 8th century B.C., and I expected to see Isaiah's sign to Ahaz as simply a prophecy for a much later time. I didn't expect to see it happen already. So, what is the situation with Ahaz? It's the 8th century BC. God's chosen people are broken up into two divided kingdoms. You have Israel in the north, and you have Judah in the south. And this prophecy comes right at 735 BC. Ahaz is the king of Judah. Ahaz is in trouble. And Isaiah is going to call Israel, this northern kingdom, Ephraim. And so Ephraim, northern Israel, and Syria are coming down to Judah and are about to wage war against Judah. And they want to take over the land from a broader international context, which is Assyria, the mega empire, is pushing westwards, extending its reach and power quickly. So Judah, King Ahaz, has three big problems. He's got Syria, northern kingdom of Israel, and he's got this mega empire, Assyria, 
that all want his land. Now, we understand the sign of Emmanuel is highly debated. We can't do justice with it at this point. As a straight prophecy to Christ, it just seems a bit too remote to speak to Ahaz. And some argue that the sign had immediate value in three ways. So these are, these are three ideas why it might have immediate fulfillment in Isaiah's time. The first is that when Isaiah comes, uh, will come, indicated that, I'm sorry, when Emmanuel will come, indicated Ahaz could expect Yahweh to do something about this international threat by the time the child was of conscious mind. So what we see is that uh, Yahweh is speaking, here's a sign, and you're going to see it in your lifetime. That comes in verse 16. The second is that the name God with us is the opposite of Ichabod, the glory of God has left us. And any mother could be moved to give that to her son. And the third is that Emmanuel could be a name of a rank of a royal prince, inspiring hope in the people. And lastly, it certainly can't be Hezekiah because Hezekiah is born some years beforehand. Now, these possibilities aren't really in conflict with each other. They're just with a long-term prediction of Christ. In fact, much of this is like a house analogy. Again, I'm coming back to that hope that one day I can own a house. Uh, it seems that there's an initial down payment of this prophecy during Ahaz's time, and then allusions to the need for a greater fulfillment are later in Isaiah chapters 8, 9, and 10. So words where this child could be called Wonderful Counselor and even Mighty God, that is a whole new designation that comes up in 8, 9, and 10. And it implies that there's something much more than what Ahaz is going to see, something much bigger. So, what about Ahaz and Isaiah's situation? This is great. To push back Ephraim and Syria, Ahaz thinks he's going to pay Assyria to do the dirty work. If you can't beat him, you might as well join him. But Isaiah has a word for him in this chapter that Matthew's quoting. He says, speaking on behalf of God, all right, you're checking out your defenses in Jerusalem. God has two words for you. First word, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and don't let your heart fear because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. He's talking about Israel and Syria. And in verse 8, he says these two things, these two will be shattered in the coming future. And then second, God wants to give you a sign. And you can just imagine Ahaz looking at Isaiah like, ready to go this, he's made up his mind. And Isaiah says, I want to give you a sign, which is like saying, I know that you need help, so let's try to find out what God can do for you. And Ahaz looks at him and says, I don't, I don't want to ask God for a sign, for the scriptures say not to test the Lord. And God says, oh, really? You're going to pull that religious stuff with me? Ahaz and God both know that Ahaz doesn't want his help. He wants Assyria, the big empire, and its salvation. Assyria is big. It's powerful, it's resourceful, it's legitimate, it's quick. And so faith never played a part 
in his religion or his politics. And behind his smooth scriptural talk lay a plan to outwit his enemies by making friends with the biggest of them. So, what does Isaiah say? Well, I'm giving you a sign anyway, even though you don't want one. A child will be born to a woman, God with us. And this is not a name per se, but a function. It's like a role. And not only am I going to get rid of Syrian Ephraim, but even the great Assyrian empire, I'm going to put to shame for coming against you. He talks about the shaving of the head and shaving of the beard. These are shame languages. So Isaiah's message is, if you're not firm in faith, you won't be firm at all. And the play of the Hebrew words are something like, hold God in doubt, you'll not hold out. Stand with God or fall without him. So what does Ahaz do? Ahaz goes forward. He sells his bill of goods to Assyria. He appeals to the aid of Tilgath-Pelesar III, king of Assyria, to repel the invaders of Syria and Israel. And guess what happens? Assyria defeats both of these two countries, crushes Syria three years later in 732. Israel will lose her northern territories in 734, her national existence in 722. And not only was Judah's political situation unimproved, but Assyria exacted a heavy tribute, lots of taxes, and Assyrian gods were introduced into the temple at Jerusalem. The moral of this story is when you are in a critical moment, hold God in doubt, you'll not hold out. If your plan fails, plan to stand with God. God's name, Emmanuel, is both a judgment and a blessing. A blessing to those who stand with God and a judgment to those like Ahaz who stubbornly sell out to God's competitors. This slide here shows the destruction of the second temple of AD 70. This is exactly what Jesus spoke to Israel, that if you choose the sword, you will die by the sword, and that's what happened. Rome crushed the second temple in AD 70. God with us in Isaiah is a terrifying and comforting notion. It is terrifying because to not stand with God means to be given to the destructive forces of the world, and to stand with God, God with us, is a sign of joy and peace and comfort. So what does this have to do with Mary and Jesus? Don't be like Ahaz, who made up his mind after pondering. Be like Joseph. Plan to stand. If you don't mind reading with me one last time. When Joseph woke up from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Thank you. There's a lot of actions here that Joseph does. How to stand in faith during failed plans and critical moments. There's one more hyperlink, and it's a really obvious one. Although I never saw it until just preparing this, and that is that Joseph is a hyperlink to Jesus in at least four ways. 
So Joseph commits the public shame of following God when wedding Mary. And for the rest of his life, friends and family won't believe his story. Joseph's wife will be seen as an adulteress. Joseph, a fool for not seeing, and his son, a illegitimate child. Joseph is a type and foreshadow of Jesus. Jesus would commit to you and me at the cross, hanging naked, bleeding, and mocked. Where, Jesus, where is Jesus calling you to commit to him? Stand in faith with God. Friends, I invite you to commit with God despite the shame. Secondly, compassion. Joseph looks upon his wife to be with compassion and by committing her, himself to her, suffers with her to the end. So too, Jesus was moved frequently to compassion for hurting people. Friends, I ask us, what moves you to suffer with others? And I invite us to join them and suffer like Joseph and Jesus. Third, consecration. Joseph set his body apart for God and did not lay with Mary until after Jesus was born. He protected the virgin birth. He consecrated Mary, covering her public shame. Jesus restored people by healing them. Only healthy people could come to the temple to worship. And Jesus' ministry and service through healing brought about uh, brought people back to the living God and each other in a whole community. This one really touched my heart. Spouses, friends, how can you cover each other this week? What would it be like to cover someone else's sins and errors, mistakes and oversights, and, but to do it in secret? What would that look like? Bless your heart, Pastor Ken said. What, what is it like to say that with our actions, but to do it secretly? Matt, bless your heart. This was too long of a sermon. I, I'm sure that there are some secret ways I can this week just cover those people I love. To make them look good and to protect them from public shame. And the last one is a funny one. It's actually control. And I think of that fruit of the Spirit, self-control. Joseph set his body apart for God and did not have sexual relations with Mary until after Jesus was born. He protected that virgin birth. And through the fruit of the Spirit, Joseph demonstrated self-control. Jesus, too, this is an image of him standing before Pilate, restrained himself from explaining himself. He knew the mission and controlled his tongue from defending himself because he trusted the Father. He stood with God at critical moments, and God raised him up on the last day. And I ask us prayerfully, what do we need control over? How can our standing with God demonstrate that fruit of self-control? And I invite us to practice self-control at critical moments. When our plan fails, we plan to stand with God. 
Amen.